Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Judson Brewer is a psychiatrist and addiction expert that specializes in mindfulness and neurofeedback techniques to help treat substance abuse and eating disorders. He is the founder of Claritas Mind Sciences, an organization that combines mindfulness and neurofeedback techniques. He's the creator of several apps that are designed to help change bad habits, and Judson is also the author of The Craving Mind, all about where our addictions come from and how we can break them. He puts it bluntly, as human, we're all addicts, in some capacity anyway. The meaning of addiction isn't just talking about the big ones, like drugs and alcohol. It can be food, it can be cigarettes, it can be too much screen time. We talk about how stress, anxiety, and anger all drive us toward bad patterns, succumbing to cravings, and ultimately our own addictions. Mostly, he tells us to be curious about our cravings, to understand ourselves more deeply, and change the habits that hold us back. So in a moment that we're having a craving, we can actually flip the valence from unpleasant craving to pleasant curiosity simply by being curious about the craving. Boom, mind hack right there. Let's cut to my chat with Judd Brewer. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. In a nutshell, are we all addicts? Yes. Yeah, it seems that way. Mm -hmm. I have to say that obviously I'm aware of addiction. My dad's a doctor. He loves to talk about how everyone's an alcoholic in his own estimation, more or less. It's very annoying. But I'd never actually read the criteria for what addiction is. Mm -hmm. And in the context of your book, The Craving Mind, you sort of put it in there in terms of smartphone use. Yeah. And I was a little taken aback by my own results. Really? <laughs> is that the is that the most is that the addiction of the time these times besides opioids? I would say there are many 
and that's one that's an emerging addiction mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people aren't talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, because I so I'd started learning this simple definition of addiction when I was in residency training at, at Yale at the time. I learned this definition continued use despite adverse consequences, mm-hmm. which seems really simple. And I was working with a bunch of folks with addictions, you know, all sorts of the classic addictions, you know, alcohol, cocaine, heroin, those types of things. Yet I had this light bulb moment where, wait a minute, continued use despite adverse consequences. I was looking in the mirror and (laughs) wait a minute. Hmm. So I could just start listing off my own addictions, you know, oh, wait a minute, I'm addicted to exercise, you know, Mm -hmm. continued use despite adverse consequences. I was, you know, addicted to thinking, addicted to romantic love. And, And all of this stuff just started unfolding from this simple definition. And this is where this, you know, I, I, started thinking, wow, we all have these addictions. So mm-hmm. shopping, gaming, all of this type of, uh, all of these types of things. And then there was even a deeper level where it's like, well, these are actually driven by something. As I got to know my patients, as I got to know how the mind works a little bit more, started seeing, you know, these are driven by things like stress and anxiety and loneliness. So mm-hmm. for example, you know, a lot of folks eat because they're stressed out or they're lonely. So ironically turn to social media, which mm-hmm. tends to make people Drive even more loneliness. lonely. Yes, yeah. the, the research is showing that. And so this deeper level where, where these things like stress and anxiety and, and anger even were driving these habits, I started to just see how broad this was. Right. It's like we're all addicted. And, and it seems like it could almost be, you know, I like that the book is The Craving Mind because I think everyone can relate. You might have these addictive moments where you're just like standing over the sink, pummeling that pint of ice cream, or just like, I've done that. It's, mm-hmm. it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. It's not my, I'm not, it's not my normal pattern, but I think we all have those moments when you're like, why am I still doing this? This is disgusting. But w- at what point do you think it's like those moments then become pattern that then become your life on alcohol (laughs) or your life on Twitter or your life on, you know, name it. I think that's when, you know, when they become so ingrained that we are, and it comes back to the definition, we're doing them despite adverse consequences and often we're not even aware of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's insidious. So we're, you know, we're, oh, it's, you know, it's great. I'm going to check my Twitter account or whatever. And then eventually, you know, I remember, uh, I was uh, training somebody, a resident psychiatrist, who said that she woke up one time. So she had she'd read my book and was uh, was using one of our apps as a way to start to learn mindfulness. And she said, "I woke up. My you know my kids were at the dinner table eating dinner, and I was standing away from the dinner table, locked onto my newsfeed. Mm. And she just woke up to that moment with this." <gasps> continued use despite adverse consequences. And mm-hmm. so for her, it was this newsfeed, but she hadn't noticed it because it was so insidious mm-hmm. until she was not having dinner with her family. Right. And you, in the book, you talk about how in working with, with hardcore addicts, typically, who then sort of resort to like caffeine and, and nicotine, right, as they're getting off of harder drugs, like those mm-hmm. tend to be the things that take hold that they can't, really can't shake because they don't have major consequences. Right. Especially th- immediate ones. Right. So think about, 
and I think of this, and a lot of my patients describe it this way, is it's it's kind of like this comfort food, so right. to speak, cigarettes in particular, smoking. And a lot of them had started smoking uh, way before they started using other drugs. So on average, uh, folks tend to start smoking at the age of 13, at least Ugh. the folks that I've treated. I know it's crazy. And so they start smoking, and then they start adding in these other drugs. And so by the time they're ready to – so they can – you know, ready to quit the other drugs, they're like, well, I, at least I've got smoking as a way, as this comfort to right. help, you know, help me with something. And the nicotine, you know, jacks a little bit of dopamine. And so it helps in the brain a little bit. And then when they're ready to quit smoking. So for example, I had a guy who had been smoking 40 years. Yeah. And so on average, he'd been reinforcing that habit loop around smoking about 293,000 times. Right. So that level of reinforcement is really hard to shake, especially because, you know, we don't get cancer the first time we smoke a cigarette. Otherwise, nobody would smoke. So it's, you know, we think, oh, well, I'm smoking. I learned to smoke when I'm a teenager because it's cool or whatever. And then we never think about the consequences. Like, oh, 50 years down the road, I could get cancer. I could get right. emphysema or something like that. Yeah, we're terrible at that. So, and I, it was funny, like that... I am not a smoker because my dad's a pulmonologist. So like that and motorcycles were the two things that I was forbidden to do, but everything else was on the table, which was kind of wise. But the, the moment where you talk about how parent one successful smoking deterrent when parents catch their kids is to make them smoke 10 cigarettes in a row until they're physically ill, right? Because then the brain knows it's, it's toxic. So like yeah. what are the, what is that feedback loop that's so habit forming? Well, it's interesting because this, all of this is so fascinating. So let's start with that one. But this one's interesting because it was actually set up to help us survive. Mm. And so we can break it down to its simplest elements. You need three things. You need a trigger, you need a behavior, and a, a result, or in brain speak, a reward. Mm -hmm. So in, in the you know, old days when we had to remember where food was, we would you know, be looking around. Hunger would be that trigger signal. We would find some food. We'd eat it. That'd be that behavior. And then as we ate the food, we'd get this dopamine hit in our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So there's those three things. Mm. And so it's actually set up as a, as a way to help us remember where food is. Same mechanisms also used to help us avoid danger, right? You see the saber-toothed tiger, you run away, you live to tell the tale, so to right. speak. So that process is, is very, very well-known, very old. It's actually evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug, right? Mm -hmm. 20,000 neurons, sea slug learns the same way that humans learn. So in, that's, that's the, the raw material that we're talking about here. Yet in modern day, when food is plentiful, right, we, we go out and we, we're stressed out. So there's the trigger. We eat some food, let's say cupcakes or chocolate or whatever, and we feel better. And our brain learns in the same way, yet it's learning not because it's hungry, but because it's trying to avoid something unpleasant. And right. it learns, oh, I eat some chocolate, I feel better. So I was very excited when I saw rain in the book. In fact, I took pictures of it and sent it to many people I know because one of the other things about cigarettes in particular is that now with vaping being an option, there are even fewer consequences and it seems to be even more addictive. So I was like, this is, this is proven, right? Like you've studied, you put this into clinical trials against sort of the standard Yes. Standard bearer of like how to quit smoking. Yes. So we compared mindfulness training to gold standard treatment. In this case, the American Lung Association has a treatment called freedom from smoking. It's a cognitive based therapy. 
And, you know, smoking being one of the hardest addictions to quit, there's a couple of gold standard treatments out there. Interestingly, the likelihood that people's gonna, people are going to stay quit having quit smoking is 5% at the end of a year. Mm. So our track record is not that great. And it's, very, it's really interesting that we've standardly gone to things like willpower-based treatments because our thinking mind says, you know, I'll come in and save the day. And we think, oh, yeah, willpower. If I only had a little more willpower, then I would whatever. Well, mm-hmm. if willpower really worked, we wouldn't do any of these crazy things that we're doing all right. the time. We'd quit smoking. We wouldn't overeat. You know, we wouldn't get caught up in worry habit loops. Right. So the willpower piece, we were kind of pitting mindfulness training directly against willpower because mindfulness works in a very different way. It actually, so there's good data showing that willpower gets depleted over time. Right, we so have a finite amount, right? We have a finite, so yeah, Roy Baumeister at Florida State's done a lot of work showing, uh, they call it ego depletion. As you go through the day, as we get tired, it's harder to resist our urges, which is why we're in the, we're in the kitchen at night right. eating ice cream, not in the morning. right. So in that case, we really wanted to see, you know, how does mindfulness training compare to willpower? And the idea is we're bringing in awareness and kind of rubbing our noses in what the actual behavior is. Because the key is that reward-based learning is based on rewards. It's not based on the behavior itself. Right. And so we can't just say, stop the behavior. But we can say, well, how rewarding is this? I'll give you an example from somebody in our smoking study who basically said, you know, we had her pay attention as she was smoking. So we said, you know, don't tell yourself to quit smoking because that's what all these folks had come in to do. We said, just smoke. And they looked at us like we were crazy at first. You know, like, I I came here to quit smoking. You're telling me to smoke. And we said, well, just add one twist to this. Pay attention when you smoke and see what it's like. And this person said, it smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals. Yuck. Yeah. So that was a profound moment for her. Because she saw from her own direct experience that smoking actually was not very good. And so she didn't have to convince her mind to not smoke. Right. She was becoming disenchanted. So she moved from her thinking brain or thinking mind down to her feeling body. And her feeling body was saying, dude, this is not so good. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. And when we're not excited to do something, it's a lot easier not to do it in the future as compared to trying to force ourselves not to do it. Right. So 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 the acronym RAIN is... Hold on. Recognize. All right. I guess you know it. Yeah. (laughs) I've worked with a little bit. (laughs) So recognize. Recognize. Allow. A stands for allow. I stands for investigate. And N stands for note. And we can walk through each of those. Yeah. Let's walk through them. Okay. So if we're stuck, so think of that habit loop, trigger behavior reward. If we're stuck on autopilot and we're just spinning that loop away, we're lost. We're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. So the first step is to recognize, oh, I'm caught in this habit loop. That's R, recognize. Mm -hmm. And we can apply recognize to specific things, like for smoking or for eating, oh, that's a craving. Mm -hmm. Or if we're anxious, for example, we're worrying, we can recognize, oh, I'm caught in worry thinking, Mm -hmm. right? Or I'm bored. Or I'm bored, right? Boredom's a great one. Oh, I'm bored, I'm going to go eat, or I'm going to smoke, or whatever. I'm going to check my social media. Right. (laughs) So R stands for recognize. A stands for allow. So if we're working with cravings, and this is where the willpower piece comes in, often here's a craving that comes up and we're like, oh, you know, like, ah, I don't want this to be here. So we push it away. 
or we try to distract ourselves. And that only works until it stops working. Right. So, so instead of pushing it away, which takes energy in itself, we just invite it in. That's really one of the key elements of mindfulness is being with whatever is arising. So mm-hmm. that's the allow piece. Allow it to be here. And importantly, we can't investigate what's happening if it's like way over there. You know, mm-hmm. we can't say, hey, craving, you stay over there and I'll be over here. We'll be cool, right? We'll just, no, that doesn't work that way. If we turn toward it, we can actually get close. Mm-hmm. And that's where the eye comes in, investigate. And I think of this as curiosity. So tell me this, what feels better, a craving or curiosity? Curiosity is my favorite state of being. No kidding. Okay. <laughs> we got lots to talk about here because mine too, mine too. <laughs> So in a moment that we're having a craving, we can actually flip the valence from unpleasant craving to pleasant curiosity simply by being curious about the craving. Mm. Boom, mind hack right there. Right there, we're flipping from unpleasant to pleasant. So we get curious about the craving. And I like to think, I like to use simple questions like, well, what's happening in my body right now? What's happening in my mind? Simply, not in a thinking way, like let me figure out what's happening, but simply dropping into our direct experience. Oh, what does this craving feel like? And that, oh, that's curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's tightness. It's burning. It's, it's something in my throat. It's this. It's this. And we dive into those sensations. And what, those, what that helps us do is see that this craving isn't some big, bad, terrible thing that's going to clobber us. It's just sensations coming and going moment to moment. Mm-hmm. So I had a patient who came into my office and he said, Doc, if I don't smoke, my head's going to explode. <laughs> And, and I, I didn't know what to do. So I came up with this terrible joke. I was like, well, if your head explodes, then let's put the pieces back together and call me and we'll, we'll write up a case report. <laughs> he was, and he, he humored me with a polite laugh. And, and, I, and I said, well, seriously, let's map this out. What does head exploding feel like? Mm-hmm. And we went through the rain. And so the end part of rain is note. So we had him note out loud what his experience was. Oh, well, it feels like this. It feels like tightness. It's burning. It's tension. It's this. And we were able to map it out. So as, these, as that craving came up, these sensations would be there, and they were stronger and stronger, and then they started to go away. Hmm. And he had this aha moment. Wait, I can be with these sensations because they don't last forever. Mm-hmm. Right? I've had tons of patients say, oh, I feel like this craving's lasting forever. And I said, well... How long is it actually? Have you ever had a craving that's lasted forever? And then they look and they say, of course, no, because they would still have that, whatever that craving was that started five years ago. Right. So they realize, oh, it just feels bad in the moment. But that feeling bad in the moment is going to change. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the core elements of mindfulness is helping us be with these things that are unpleasant and kind of holding them, cradling them like a, like a baby. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying, get out of here, saying, oh, you're part of me. Oh, and you're just a sensation. You're you're not some terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, we can actually turn toward these things with kindness and with curiosity and be with these sensations until they come and go and then realize, oh, I can actually ride out a craving. Yeah. It seems not dissimilar to, like, I think about breakups in my past and how painful they are, how acutely painful they are. And then it's almost like a Nautilus shell. You know, where it's like, it feels like those moments of pain and sadness get, there's like a little bit more space between each one and it keeps like 
radiating out what until you're like, image. you're out of it. Yeah, I'm totally visual. Like, oh, what a great <laughs> image. That is absolutely it. Because in the moment, it feels very contracted, right? Right. So I can really see that space opening and opening and opening. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of this is that we can actually see that there is space that's always available. Mm-hmm. Every moment, there's space that we can tap into. And we can, you know, let's take this to its extreme. So if you think of, contra- you know, cravings lead to this contracted state. So does fear. So does worry. So does anxiety. Well, when we're with these sensations and see that they aren't us, they aren't who we are, that opens up this huge amount of space where we can be with sensations rather than be the sensations. Mm-hmm. So I've had folks in our Unwinding Anxiety program talk about how they had seen themselves identified with anxiety And after going through the program, realizing, oh, these are just sensations that that say, oh, this is anxiety and not me. Yes. And a huge breakthrough, huge breakthrough. And that space, like in those moments of space, there's relief. It's like it allows you to go back into the battle and you know it's going to be over. Whereas I feel like sometimes those, when you're in that vortex, like I've never been an active addict, so I don't know exactly what that's like. Although you would argue that I'm probably addicted to many things, which is true. But I feel like when you see the light, if you can't see the light, because you're always a victim of your cravings, I would imagine how hopeless that feels. But when you know you can get to the other side without succumbing, is that it? Is it like those are the break, people build those breakthroughs, they start to like retrain their brain? Yes. So imagine that we are, you know, we're constantly, our head's underwater, Mm-hmm. and it just feels like we're drowning all the time. Well, the first time our head comes up for water and we get this breath of fresh air, we realize, oh, there's air up here. Mm-hmm. And then we go back down, and we're down for a long time again, and then we come back up, and we oh, there's air up here. And then we realize we can actually train our minds to do this, mm-hmm. to come up, and that actually there's air here all the time. So that's actually what mindfulness training is about, is really training us to understand the habit patterns of our mind. Mm. If we can understand those, then we can start to work with our minds. But if we can't understand them, that time that we come up for fresh air, we have no idea what created that. Mm -hmm. And so we might even say, oh, well, I was... I was drinking celery juice at the time, and so it must be celery juice that makes me whatever. And it was just, you know, my old PhD mentor used to say, true, true, and unrelated. Mm -hmm. You could have that that breath of fresh air and be doing something. And then we, our brains love to link things together. Correlation, not causation. It's true, true. So had that breath of fresh air, drank the celery juice, but doesn't mean the celery juice made me have that thing. Right. And we have to realize, you know, if we can't reproduce that experiment, that that's, that may not be an accurate representation of how our minds work. Well, these ancient, I mean, these ancient, ancient traditions actually figured out how our minds worked. Right. And we're actually rediscovering this in modern day through psychiatry, through through modern neuroscience. We've even mapped a bunch of this stuff out in the brain. So we're kind of rediscovering what's been known for a long time, and now we can actually apply it. Yeah. Aren't we so good at that, right? Like making really ancient new discoveries. (laughs) Check this out. Somebody just taps (laughs) us on the shoulder. It's It's only 2,500 years old, but it's cool. You can... (laughs) (laughs) Can appropriate it, right? You think about so many healing systems that come out of the East and how, how hard it is for them to become part of our vernacular... And then they end up being like the thing. It's the thing, right? It's, I love how much energy you've invested in studying meditation and sort of its powers and how to not be victimized by your mind, mm. really. 
there's a lot of suffering out there. So yeah. I just want to make a little dent in the world. And this is one, if we make a little dent in this, it will help. Yeah, a lot totally. And I thought this was a really important part of your book when you talk about how, for whatever reason, and you can explain why, we tend to conflate excitement and happiness. Mm. Am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah. That there's that that fluttering, and I guess that's the reward, that excitement moment. And then we tend to like get hooked on it as some variation of happiness, but the two are completely different well, concepts. So let's explore this curiosity. Curiously, let's yeah. explore this experientially, and uh, anybody listening can actually do this with us. So let's let's kind of set up the scale so we can make sure that we're we're understanding experience and understanding each other. So let's start with, uh, I'll ask you if something feels more contracted or expanded, like we talked mm -hmm. about with craving versus curiosity. So does fear feel more contracted or expanded in your contracted. experience? Contracted. Okay. Mine too. Absolutely. So it feels contracted. How about something like joy? Expansive. Expansive. Okay. Now the trick question that I'm going to tell you <laughs> is the trick question. So it won't be as tricky of a question. So if you had to pick between joy and excitement, which one feels more expanded? Joy. Yes. Did I pass? You, <laughs> A plus. But that's, that's a tricky one for a lot of people. They haven't realized that there's a higher level of happiness than excitement because mm. they've been trained, whether it's societally or in, for whatever reasons, they, they think, oh, the roller coasters, the imagining my next kiss if they've just started on, in a new romantic relationship – all of that excitement is the best that it's ever been for them. Mm -hmm. And if they don't realize there's something more rewarding, then that's going to be their highest level of happiness. And so they mistake, you know, mistake this excitement of the mind for happiness. And it's not that they necessarily mistake it, but it's that they've not known anything else. So there's actually a part of the brain that I think of as the BBO part of the brain. Do you, have you heard that term before, BBO? No. The bigger, better offer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so our brain is always looking for the BBO, the bigger, better offer. And for me, I'll use a concrete example. So for me, it's chocolate. Mm -hmm. So if you give me a piece of milk chocolate versus a piece of 70% chocolate, and I get to taste both of them, my brain says 70% hands down. That's the bigger, better offer for my brain. And then you jack that up to 85% and then it's something's going off there. And then you add sea salt or you, you know, and then you take the different brands and some brands have just this wonderful mouthfeel to it, you know? And so, <laughs> so my brain has this crazy library, this crazy hierarchy of bigger, better offers. If somebody says, here's some chocolate. My brain says, well, what kind of chocolate is it? Because I'm not interested in milk chocolate. I won't eat it. But if you give me 70%, especially if it's this brand with the, 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 I'm in. And so our brain is looking for that bigger, better offer. So mm -hmm. if we come back to excitement versus joy, if excitement is the best offer we've ever received, why would our brain look anywhere else? It's like, well, this is it. This is as good as it gets. Let's just try to get back on that roller coaster of life. Mm -hmm. Let's scroll through the Twitter feed. Let's you know get on Tinder. Let's do whatever it is that's going to get me that excitement. But then when we offer it something better, and we say, well, actually, hold on here a second. Let's explore what joy feels like. Mm. And we see the quality of experience that comes with that expansion that comes with joy as compared to the contraction that, that comes with excitement. Then our brain says, bigger, better offer, hands down. I'll move into joy. 
And this is where it's amazing because we can start to look at all sorts of habits and everyday addictions that we have. So we can look at, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go on Twitter and, and we can ask ourselves, well, what do I get from this? Mm-hmm. And how does this compare to, you know, really connecting with somebody in a, in a real conversation, like totally dialed in, you know, lose track of time, all that stuff. Hands down, bigger, better off to, to totally be connected with somebody. Right. So this is where we can actually just help people simply bring awareness to what we're actually doing in any one moment and ask, how rewarding is this actually? Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. When it comes to skincare, I am big on exfoliating a lot. I use Goop's Exfoliating Instant Facial every single day, even though the box technically says to do it just two or three times a week. I don't really wear makeup when I'm going to the office during the week, but I always wear moisturizer or face oil. And the other thing I do every single morning is drink Goop Glow. Goop Glow is our morning skin super powder. So in other words, it's a powder that you mix into a glass of water. The flavor tastes a little like oranges and a little like lemon verbena. I love it. We designed Goop Glow to be full of ingredients that support healthy, glowing skin. There are six potent antioxidants in Goop Glow. You've probably heard of most of them, like vitamin C and vitamin E, CoQ10, lutein, and zeaxanthin. And altogether, these antioxidants in Goop Glow are meant to reduce the free radical effects of the sun, pollution, and everyday stress. Topical skincare is great, but I personally don't think it's enough, which is why I like adding Goop Glow to my routine. The powder comes in cute little single dose packets. I subscribe to our 30 packs of Goop Glow, so I get my new box every month. And if I'm not drinking it at home, I'll throw a packet in my gym bag on the way to work out, or I'll bring a bunch of Goop Glow in my carry-on when I'm traveling for sure. If you wanna try it out yourself, and I highly recommend you do, order one box of Goop Glow today, and we'll include a second box on us. Just head to goop.com slash podcast and use promo code GOOPGLOW at checkout. That's goop.com slash podcast, and use promo code GOOPGLOW to get your second box on us. So we've gotten a little podcast obsessed over here. 
Maybe it's because we have a series of our own, but I find it really interesting to listen to different hosts and see how their interview styles vary. There's always something new to learn. One podcast that we've talked about on here before, The Barney's Podcast, is coming back for a third season, which we're very excited about. And they're revamping for the new season. Journalist Noor Tagori is taking over as this season's host. She celebrates leaders who dare to use their voices to speak up and speak out, and she has a very compelling way of telling stories. Noor reminds us that fashion and design aren't necessarily just the clothes we wear. They can be a way of expressing our creativity, and she's just really an inspiration. On the Barney's podcast, Noor is sitting down with some of the most innovative figures in the fashion industry. They talk about all the things you want to know about their world, why they do what they do, and why that matters. For starters, there's an episode with Tan France, Queer Eye's beloved fashion designer. He's talking about how he almost quit Queer Eye in the beginning, about handling the intense pressure he felt as a young professional in the fashion industry, and about how he used clothing to express himself as a child, like wearing his favorite Disney denim vest. On another episode, Noor chats with Elaine Weltroth, the former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, who happened to be a panelist at one of our Ingoop Health Summits. Noor also has on Dapper Dan and model Jillian Mercado. You can keep up with all Noor's chats, listen and subscribe to the Barney's Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to today's conversation. Do you find, because I know you look at a lot of F, is it fMRI mm-hmm. activity that there are certain people who are more inclined for like those highs and lows who like that that experience versus people who are into the more moderated, expansive joy? It's a really good question. We haven't dialed in at that level, yeah. but we have looked, for example, we've looked at um, people who've never meditated before versus people who've meditated for a long time. And we've done a bunch of even real-time neurofeedback experiments. We even had Anderson Cooper come in and, ha- and he meditated while we were filming his brain changing. It was pretty amazing for 60 minutes. <laughs> but here, as people start to dial in to that, the quality of experience that comes with joy, it's hard for them to even move into the other space. Mm. And so uh, with these real-time neurofeedback experiments, we at the end, we have people as experienced meditators, you know, they, they can really sink into this, like, this spacious space, literally. And then we say, okay, go this other way, you know, like get contracted. And their brain's like, uh, no, thanks. Mm-hmm. And they just, they just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas novice meditators, it's a little more of their default right. is, is to be in that, you know, activated state. So is there, is there a gene for addiction? Like, are there certain people who are more inclined? Like, does that exist? Cause I, f- I don't, I don't actually know, mm-hmm. but I know I've heard people say like there is a gene for addiction or obviously people who are parents who are addicts know that they're more inclined? Like what is, what does the science support there? There are, so there's no one gene for addiction. There are certainly a number of genes that have been implicated in a number of brain pathways involved in addiction. And so in that sense, some people may be more prone and it's really hard to disentangle. Like you're talking about the genes by the environment interaction, because often people whose parents had, you know, had addictive tendencies, then set them up through both probably both their genes and their environment to do it. Right. But the key here is to recognize that this habit loop, this you know, this addiction pathway that we have 
is inherent to all of us. It's really a learning pathway. So the good news is no matter what genes we've gotten, right, because we have no control over those, no matter what genes we have, we can actually work with our minds mm-hmm. and we can learn to work with our mind, whether it's a hardcore addiction or just in, I shouldn't say just an everyday addiction because everyday addictions are pretty tough, whether it's anxiety or worry or, mm-hmm. um, or, or Facebook or whatever. So thinking about, you know, the genetic factors of addiction or we think about this generation being raised on technology and like in so many ways, the future is now, this right. is... I was raised on, you know, I had TV. I had a lot of the stuff and I'm fine, questionably. But in terms of helping young people, or is it important to sort of train them on what this addiction loop looks like so that they can then, does that arm them throughout life to sort of understand why they're doing whatever it is that they're doing? I think it's critical. It's just my opinion. In this, it's interesting because children are technology natives, right? Mm-hmm. When they don't know what it was like not to have technology, right? Everything from social media to, you know, iPads to whatever. That's just how they don't know the world without it, without these. And these technologies are increasingly uh, kind of gaming our brains. The more neuroscience is known, the more folks can actually capitalize on that and, and get us you know, hooked to whatever their app or their program or their whatever is. So if we don't arm people with that understanding of how their mind works, they're just going to become enslaved by, mm-hmm. by technology. So I think it's critical. This floored me. Uh, but it, there seems to be this addiction to self, right? Or this self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And the study, I don't know if the, the if everyone was young. I can't remember. But essentially, it was like 17%. People would take 17% less money in order to talk about themselves. Yes. Can, what, can you explain what that was? Because it... Well- that's it made crazy, me very isn't it? sad. <laughs> that we would forego real money that can buy us food. Yeah. <laughs> in order to basically talk about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So there were a couple of studies. The first one was done at Harvard uh, a few years ago now, where they put people in, F- in an fMRI scanner and they basically, you know, gave. So for an fMRI study, we need two conditions you need a baseline or a, a comparison condition, your active uh, experimental condition. And so here, you know, the two conditions like you talked about were, you know, you can earn money or you can talk about yourself, basically. And people chose, they were more likely to choose to talk about themselves. They forego money, actual monetary rewards to talk about themselves. And when they were doing it, they were activating a part of their brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is the downstream recipient of dopamine from, uh, it's the most well-characterized addiction pathway known in the brain. So basically, you know, this part of the brain gets activated by alcohol, by heroin, by nicotine, and apparently by Facebook, you know, if you if you mm-hmm. think of it that way. There's another study that actually showed that they could prevent they could uh, predict the amount of time that people spent on Facebook based on how much their nucleus accumbens was activated. And that and that's fed by social and because of the self you know, you're seeing yourself realize in a way by like likes and engagement with whatever you're posting. And like in terms of unraveling that, yeah. we're addicted to ourselves. Is that what it's saying? So it's, there's something rewarding about about ourselves. Yes. So for example, and, and it's interesting in modern day, so most communication happens non-verbally. Right. So that's actually a critical element of just taking in our environment. 
Yet in, with social media, all of that is gone. And on top of that, feedback is quantitative. Right. So you can clearly know how many likes you got versus you didn't get. So for example, there was a study using Instagram feeds at UCLA with adolescents. And they basically took adolescents' own Instagram feeds and they manipulated only one thing, which was how many likes certain pictures got versus, over, uh, versus other ones. And they found that that... You know, getting a bunch of likes jacked this nucleus accumbens, you know, this reward-based um, learning pathway. Mm. And it also linked that up with a network called the default mode network, which is mm-hmm. involved in self-reference. And so here it was a direct link between reward and self. And so that seems to be wired. So what's sort of the antidote, like thinking about young kids getting hooked on social and themselves, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, how do you break that pattern? Yeah. So the first thing that we can do to break the pattern is understand our own minds. So for example, if we're a parent with kids, if we can't understand how the process works, we're not going to be able to help our kids. Mm. And so we've got to understand our own minds. Step one. Step two is see how we're modeling this type of behavior for our kids. Mm. So if we understand how our own minds work, then we can start to map out our own habit loops, our own everyday addictions, whether it's news feeds, whether it's check, you know, whatever, whatever they are. And they can be as simple as worrying. Mm. So worry is a, is a huge habit loop, especially it seems to be another epidemic (laughs) in modern day. I see this a lot. It's a lot in college students. It's a lot in young adults, where they're just getting out in the world and they're worried, oh, am I going to make it? You know, there's so many things to worry about. Right. So understanding how, how these habit loops work and understanding our own minds then arms us to be able to bring that wisdom to help the kids. Right. And then help them start to identify the habit patterns as well. And once we identify them, then that's where the bigger, better offer piece comes in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they're, when they're stuck gaming for, you know, 50 hours or whatever, some ridiculous amount of time, we can help them see, well, what does that feel like compared to actually having direct connection, like a good conversation with your, with your buddy and help them help their brains kind of see that clearly, not in a, oh, I should not game, right? but really helping them, their brains see this on a directly experiential level, not on a thinking level. I think that's where we're going to really change things. And, you know, honestly, we've seen this. I mean, we've done a bunch of scientific studies around, you know, how can we actually package these types of trainings and, and help people change their change mm-hmm. their behaviors? And so I'm, I'm not just saying this in theory, but I'm saying it in reality. Like, for example, boy, some of the hardest, you know, I thought smoking was hard, but we did a study. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Okay, did did all right, you know, with mindfulness training. And then we said, started working with people who are struggling with eating. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to smoke to survive, but you do have to eat. And so I realized, wow, this is hard mm-hmm. in an even bigger part of the population. So we did a study. We we made this app called Eat Right Now, help people identify these habit patterns and work with them, bring mindfulness in there. 40% reduction in craving-related eating. Boom. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then we said, we realized a lot of these folks were actually eating because of anxiety. And so we said, well, let's make a program to help people with worry thinking. Mm. 50% reduction in I need anxiety. that app. Which <laughs> yeah. app is that? It's called Unwinding Anxiety. Unwinding Anxiety. <laughs> but the idea is, and this is really helpful from a scientific perspective, if we can see this from 
four, three, four different angles where it's all pointing to the same thing, it suggests that this isn't some snake oil. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't some fad of the day. But this is really tapping into the core elements of how our minds work. Mm-hmm. And if it is, then we develop that wisdom. One of the beautiful things we've been seeing with these programs is that people are developing wisdom. Mm -hmm. So they're taking this knowledge. So we develop a specific program to help a specific thing like emotional eating or anxiety. And they learn it and, you know, helps them with that. And then they come to us with these aha moments and they say, you know what? I'm actually more connected with my significant other. And I didn't realize that I was disconnected, but this helped me see this and overcome whatever that habit loop was. Mm. Or I am kinder to myself. We see this in our eating program. It breaks my heart. So many people in our eating program have this habit loop of self-shame and blame where they can't even look in the mirror. Mm. They can't look at their body. You know, they, they just look and, and it's just too traumatic for them. But they realize, you know, that is actually a habit loop for me that self-judgment, and for many of them, this actually drives more eating behavior, ironically. Right. So they realize, oh, this is driving it, and the kindness actually feels pretty good. I mean, imagine when we're just kind to ourselves a little bit, oh, it feels so much better than when we beat ourselves up. Totally. And I think any time that you give someone the keys to understanding what's driving it and you take away sort of that self-judgment of like, God fucking damn it, like why'd you smoke another cigarette? Obviously, that's like a, mo- a far more loving – or I think it, that that distance even from yourself, right, allows you to be more compassionate. So you're bringing in the word distance, which comes back to your conch shell, right? right. Space. So what's it feel like? What is more space-like when we're judging ourselves or when we're holding ourselves? What's Mm -hmm. more connected, Mm -hmm. right? And connection feels open as compared to not being connected. That feels, that distance feels closed. So even that feels so much better. You know, it really feels that much better. Thanks for listening to my chat with Judd Brewer. If you want more, get a copy of The Craving Mind. You should also check out his apps, which are based in research. Unwinding Anxiety, Eat Right Now, and Craving to Quit, available on iTunes. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend who might need to listen. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast for more.